Hey guys, it's Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And the cannabis industry is projected to hit more than $30 billion in legal sales by the year 2025. And with this projection comes increasing job opportunities. Even with the onset of COVID, cannabis job prospects seem to remain optimistic as the cannabis industry has proven to be pretty much recession resistant, and especially in recent months. And here to talk with me about these opportunities is Carson Huniston, founder and CEO of Banks, the world's largest recruiting platform focused especially on the cannabis industry. Carson, thanks so much for being here today. Montel, thanks so much for having me, and it's great to meet you. So excited to be here. Absolutely. No, thank you. Now, how long have you been in business? We just in May celebrated our fourth year business anniversary. So we've been helping people find jobs for the last four years. That's great. Now, Banks partnered with FlowHub and LeafLink to review data on how the cannabis industry has uh, been impacted by COVID-19 and published an extensive report on cannabis uh, just recently. Now, tell us a little bit about your findings. Sure. So it was super interesting findings. And, and the reasons we paired up with LeafLink and FlowHub was so that we could look at the industry from a lot of different lenses. And so on LeafLink side, the B2B market, we could look there. On the FlowHub side, we could look and see what was happening with retailers and consumers. And then, of course, on our side, we could see what was happening with jobs. And so I think what we were seeing was actually really interesting because on the consumer side, we were seeing cannabis sales increasing, right? And so people were continuing to purchase cannabis throughout COVID. On on the job side, what we saw was that on the onset, actually um, 80% of of companies did layoffs or furloughs or or hiring freezes. And so I think people immediately went into, we got to tighten the belt. We we don't know how um, cannabis will... Uh, respond to COVID. And so there was immediate dip. And so we saw a lot of jobs fall off the platform really quickly, but fortunately it was pretty short-lived. And as businesses started seeing, oh my goodness, actually sales are going up. They quickly started bringing the furloughed and laid off employees back. And uh, now this quarter companies are really beginning to to grow and hit the growth gas again. So there was certainly a, a, a dip there for a minute, but it seems to be on the up and up, which is great. It seems as if in the industry, both, you know, uh, temporary jobs and permanent jobs have seemed to bounce back and you're getting a lot of success, especially in the last two quarters. And also I saw something that said that the industry's uh, growth in 2020 is outpacing the growth of 2019. Is that for real? Yeah. So that, that was LeafLink and FlowHub's data. And that's what they were, that's what they were seeing. Now I will say on our side, on, on the job side, we saw more job growth in 2019 so far than in than in 2020 because of the because of what was happening with COVID and I think there was as everybody knows there was a little bit of a can of session even before COVID uh, 19 was happening right companies were cash strapped and there was some capital market concerns access to capital was hard for businesses but a lot of those um, issues are working themselves out you see a lot of MSOs that are. Uh, very close to being profitable and really proving to the investment community what a great business opportunity this is. And cash seems to be flowing into the space again, which obviously creates a lot of jobs. Very, very interesting, though, you know, just looking at COVID itself as being a respiratory illness, and that's the way they project it, and that's where they talk about it. You know, the fact that people are still, I was told that that it appears that really uh, flour is still one of the biggest sellers. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what that's what the report found that the flour is still a very big seller, and like like you mentioned, people are still 
using cannabis even more so than, than they were before COVID. It appears that, that people are starting to make, in the very beginning of the COVID crisis, there seemed to be a little dip. And then all of a sudden, you know, and there seemed to be a, a rise in alcohol sales at the beginning of the crisis. Now, all of a sudden, they've kind of flipped position. Is that not right? Yeah. And so, I mean, uh, that's what everybody was asking, right? Everyone was saying, right, in, in previous recessions, alcohol has performed well. So it was a test to see how cannabis uh, would do. And, and yeah, it seems like cannabis is actually outpacing alcohol throughout this, this crisis. And there was, um, there was this one day in, in Colorado in March where um, the mayor of Denver said that they were going to be closing liquor stores and dispensaries. And they immediately turned back the, the order because the lines for dispensaries and liquor stores were blocks and blocks down the road. Like roads were honestly having to close because people panicked so much at the thought of not being able to, to purchase cannabis. And so it really seems as though the, we, we're, the, 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 um, the train isn't going to go backwards, right? And um, Well, uh, several states have declared cannabis dispensaries a, an essential service, correct? Yep. Well, how many out of all 39, but pretty much the majority of them have maintained and allowed for the continued sale or at least home delivery. Yep. And, and that was, you know, great for, I mean, for us as we provide temporary employees to our clients. And so these are our W-2 employees. We take care of all the state and federal taxes and the workers' compensation. And so navigating employing essential service employees and making sure that they were safe and that our clients were following all the right procedures. I mean, we spent the good half of March and April setting up for what does this look like? How long is this going to go on? How do we ensure that all these temporary employees are safe? How do we ensure that customers coming to the clients are safe? And so that was a huge, huge piece of this, this crisis. Well, I mean, it's looking like, you know, the customer base has maybe dwindled just a little bit, but they are buying and purchasing much more. So therefore it's kind of counterbalanced itself. It's kind of, it seems a little counterintuitive, but it is counterbalanced itself. And you've got both online sales and in-person sales are going up. Is that correct? Yep. And, you know, you look at companies like uh, Dutchie, which is an e-commerce platform where, you know, direct to consumer customers can purchase their cannabis right through Dutchie. And I mean, they saw tremendous growth. I think something like 600 plus percent growth through, through their platform and, and customers wanting to purchase their cannabis right online and then go into the dispensary. So it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out right post-COVID. I mean, I think that so many people enjoy online purchasing in a lot of other industries. And so similar to, to other industries, this seems to be no different. And a lot of the people in this business seem to think that they may actually have sales a little bit ahead of what they projected at the beginning of 2020, correct? Yep. That's what a lot of our clients are, are, are saying as the year shakes out, which is great. And I mean, if you look at it from the state's perspective, right, state's revenues are, are down um, because of all, all the state's closures. revenues overall are down, but state's yeah. revenues yes. are up. Yes, exactly. And so, I mean, when, when the states look at all the tax revenue generated from cannabis, I mean, the states that um, haven't legalized yet, um, it's, it's really, um, there's a ton of jobs that can be created from it and a lot of tax revenue that can be generated from, from legalizing something that, that's happening on the black market in their state now. Let's talk a little bit about what types of jobs are available in the industry today. What types of jobs are out there? Yeah, so I think that when you're thinking about the industry, right, it's becoming more and more, jobs are becoming more and more well-known. But when we first started, I would tell people that we help people find jobs in cannabis and they would just say like, oh, just like bud pickers, right? And so people had really no clue what types of jobs existed. So if you're somebody that has no idea what types of jobs existed, it's easiest to think about it in four buckets. 
And so you had your cultivation jobs, right? All the jobs that are actually plant touching, growing the plant. So everything from a director of cultivation, somebody that's overseeing a large scale commercial legal compliant grow facility to all the jobs down. So from horticulturalist to um, just, just straight growers and trimmers. So all the cultivation type jobs. Then you have your extraction and lab type jobs. So from the, um, you know, the director of extraction all the way down to the lab technicians. Then you have all the retail jobs. So from a dispensary general retail store manager down to what in some states they call bud tenders, others call patient consultants. And then you have the bucket of ancillary jobs and ancillary companies. And so an ancillary company would be a company like a flow hub or a leaflink, the picks and shovels of the space that are supporting the cannabis industry. So when you look at a company like flow hub or leaflink, they're staffed very similar to other technology companies. So they have an engineering teams, they have product teams, they have marketing teams. And then when I say ancillary positions um, across all the sectors, you have your your regular jobs, right? Finance, HR, marketing, sales. And so really what I always say is you can keep doing what it is. You can keep your career, change your industry. And so there's so many opportunities for people who are already have an established career in another industry to change and bring that skill set over to cannabis. So you don't necessarily need to have a degree in cannabis. You just have to have a degree in whatever your skill set is and then offer that up to the cannabis industry. Exactly. And I mean, when you think about it, there's about 250,000 people employed in the space full time right now. And over the next um, three to five years, that's expected to more than double. And so there's simply not enough people with cannabis experience to fill all these jobs. And so we're constantly recruiting from outside of the space, recruiting from tons of different industries. I mean, there's there's industries that are um, more comparable to others, right? Take large-scale commercial agriculture, right? On the cultivation side, that's very transferable. On the CPG side, right? Outside sales there is a, is, a, is a place where a lot of our clients are looking to hire people with CPG sales experience. And so there's, of course, always um, industries that are more, um, you know, similar. But at the end of the day, I mean, we've, we've placed uh, dispensary managers who were formerly managers of Lululemon, right? In large retail locations. And so um, I think there's tons of opportunities for a lot of different people. Absolutely. And, you know, when you say there's tons of opportunity, well, there's tons of opportunity for people who aren't people of color. And as much as we have all of these industry, all of these these rules and regulations around the country in certain states claiming to have, you know, uh, you know social justice programs, those social justice programs aren't being met. We sure. know that as a fact. So yeah. what your industry, what are you trying to do to see if you can counterbalance that a little bit? I mean, you have an industry that was basically built on the backs of brown and black people, you know, yeah. 80 people who have been incarcerated since it's made, making it illegal in 1937 have been people of color. Yet, you know, less than 3% of the people that are in this industry are people of color. Sure. So and I mean, what do we do that? Do, do what? Yeah. So two years ago, we launched our social equity program. And what we're trying to do is, in, for, you know, it starts out with our clients making a plan, right? And so to your point, a lot of clients say that, we're committed to hiring social equity candidates. But then when you look at their staff, they're, they're not. And so we partnered with Last Prisoner Project, 70 million jobs and a lot of other organizations. And so that we would have better access to 
candidates that are from communities of color, right? So that we can work with them to get their resume in shape. We can work with them to talk about their work experience and we can present them to our clients. And so we have a lot, you know, we, I just actually earlier today, I was on the phone with last prisoner project and, you know, they send us constituents every single day, right? Actually folks who recently got out of prison and are part of the reentry process. And we're working with them to help them get connected with our clients. But to your point, it comes down to the cannabis businesses making more than a statement and actually, um, you know, actions speak louder than words, committing to hiring, committing to making equity hires. And so we encourage our clients. Those equity hires don't only have to be people who have been incarcerated. Sure. It seems to be that that that's where, you know, most people think that you have to, you know, Mm -hmm. give a job to a person who's a former felon, but, you know, just people of color in general are looking for jobs and positions in this industry and are kind of met with the closed door in some of these places. I'm just wondering, how do you perceive uh, over, you know, coming out of COVID, how do you perceive this changing? I think that a lot of clients are making steps in the right direction. I generally believe that, but I believe there's so much more work to be done. And, and to the point, I think that actions speak louder than words. And so a lot of clients came forth with very large uh, commitments that they're planning on making over the next 12 months for their hires. I think that time will tell, right, in the next 12 months when, we, when you can go back and you can look and see how many um, candidates, uh, you know, how many how many hires did they actually make in comparison to how many did they say they would make? So I think the industry is moving in the right direction, but I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done for every company, you know, including banks. Now, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of work. I mean, I guess, and, and I kind of consider this kind of a B2B initiative in the sense, because you're working with businesses, trying to get businesses to, you know, reach out to each other and understand what's going on. But I have felt, and this has been, you know, I mean, I got in this business, Back in 2000, long before it was Vogue, you know, I've been working, I've been working in states trying to pass legislation, you know, across the board. And I was involved in probably 13 of the states that finally passed medical marijuana laws way before this became, you know, the green rush in a sense. And, you know, as I, as I look at the industry, I have, have been, you know, a little disappointed because I think one of the biggest things that we've made a mistake in is we've done a lot of work in the B2B space, but not a lot of work in the B2C space to the consumer. You know, we've kind of just stopped our educational process to the consumer. And, you know, we've got states out here and people who want to go wreck thinking that, you know, cannabis is going to be used mostly by a younger generation where we know when you look around the world, cannabis is consumed more by an older generation. You know, the baby boomers who remember smoking their first joint when they were in the 60s or early 70s are the same ones that are turning to it again now when they turn late 60s, early 70s. Um, what do you think we have to do to, 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 I don't know, jumpstart or kick the industry in the rear a little bit and make them remember that, you know, without a consumer base, this industry just dies and we've got to be able to, to reach out and do more education. How are we going to do that? I think the bud tenders play and the people actually selling the cannabis play such an important role in it. And, and, and bud tender training is, is critical. So I think that that's one area of, of huge opportunity right? Ensuring that when a customer or a patient comes into a dispensary, they can have accurate information. I mean, to the point that you just made, right? Somebody that comes into a dispensary that asks the bud tender questions about a specific product, if they're given bad advice, like their entire weekend or whatever could be completely ruined because they could take the wrong dosage or be misinformed. And then they never go back. They they never come back. They never consume again. And so I do think that initial piece of information for uh, consumers are super important, and there's a gap there. There's a gap. Now, are, we, are you doing anything? You're, you're probably, that's not your purview as a job, but you, I, clearly you're attending 
conferences and things around the country who tried to convince people to get a little bit more into the education. I mean, I, I don't even understand why a lot of dispensaries don't uh, come up with their own book. Sure. Come up with their own, you know, SOP. And yeah. hand it out for free. Walk down the street, just hand it out. Say, you know, Dad, have you ever thought about this? Here's something that you need to know. Yeah. The majority we, of people, the majority of consumers out there don't even know that this is a product that's been vetted out by the federal government for over 60 years. A lot of people don't know that our government funded most of the research that Dr. Mishulam did back in the 80s and the 90s. A lot of us and people out here don't know. I'm, I'm shocked at how many people don't know that the federal government owns a patent on CBD and has owned a patent since 2001, applied for it in 1998. There's just things that I think, once you, once you say that to people, they, they look at you like, what, what? Are you kidding me? I didn't know that. Well, <laughs> I started telling them a little bit more of that. They might go, hmm, clearly if this is something that our government thought was good enough for people, maybe I should think it's good enough for me. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million-dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. No, I look, I totally agree with you. Banks isn't doing anything in, in the educational space right now. It's certainly not to say that we won't. We've had our hands full with on, on the job side of the business. And I think that my philosophy is, as an entrepreneur is try to do one thing really, really well. So we want to be the best at helping people find jobs and um, helping them find great jobs they can thrive in. But it's something I, I, I think about all the time. And um, if someone doesn't tackle it sooner than later, I probably will. Good, good. Reach out because I'll, I'll give you a hand on that for sure. That's I think, great. I really believe that's the most important aspect for making this this industry actually thrive over the next 10 years and actually getting to a point where we change the status of cannabis. And when I say status, I'm talking about legal status to a emotional, to a, you know, a, a, a status in, within this, our society. You know, people don't even understand that, you know, the majority of uh, America, the only reason why America survived wasn't because of tobacco, it was because of hemp. We sold the, ro- the world its sails and its ropes. We don't remember that. And, you know, there would not be inter- intercontinental commerce were it not for us growing as much hemp as we did in the United States, then turning that hemp into sails and ropes that would actually carry our cargo ships across the oceans. People don't stop and think. And that's one of those things that I think could literally start to change the needle a little bit, start to change the paradigm a little bit. Um, when it comes to, you know, a person, what, what should the average person is thinking, man, you know, I'm coming out of this, this COVID crisis and the shutdown, and I'm thinking I might like to get a job in the cannabis industry. What should I do first? Uh, go to banks.com and build your profile. But no, seriously, I think it's, it's really important to think about what part of the industry that you want to be part of, right? I think people come to us all the time and they say, I'd love cannabis. I'd love to work in cannabis. And it's like, okay, great. Let's talk a little bit about like what you want to do, right? How can you help this industry move forward? What are you really, really good at? What makes you passionate about getting out of bed every single day? And like, how can we help you find your niche there? Um, And so really trying to understand like 
what do I want to do within the industry and taking the time, like you just said, to, to learn the industry. I mean, there are a ton of, there are, I, I'm not over the moon impressed by any of them, but if you, you know, if you look online, there's a ton of resources out there um, that, that you can look at just around the industry in general. And so maybe m- making sure that you really understand what's going on in, in the industry and where you think that you can personally fit in really well. Great. Well, Carson, look, you know, I got to pay some bills. Got to take a little break for a second. I want you to stick around. And for all of you listening, make sure you stick around because this is a really wonderful conversation. We're talking to Ms. Carson Huniston, founder and CEO of Vanks, the world's largest recruiting platform for that's focused specifically on the cannabis industry. I'm going to take a little break, pay some bills. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And today's guest is a really, I'm going to say a groundbreaker, a earth shaker in the industry. Her name is Carson Huniston and Humiston, and she's the founder and CEO of Vanks, the world's largest recruiting platform specifically focused on the cannabis industry. And, you know, with an industry that is projected to hit more than $30 billion in legal sales by the year 2025, you know, and projection uh, for that kind of sales is going to be a projection in job growth that, literally, I think will outpace the majority of the other fields in this country. So I'm so happy to have you here, Carson. And thank you so much for giving us the information that you've already given us so far in this podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for, for part two. Well, let's talk about part two. What's coming? What's next for Banks? Yeah. So we, when we started Banks, I actually started Banks when I was an undergrad in college. And so um, in the last four years, we've, we've uh, changed and grown a lot. And we started out as a, a manual service business. So we were a straight up staffing agency and we launched a platform where companies actually post their jobs. They review their candidates uh, right in, in their dashboard. And we started doing that on the temporary side and we recently launched it on the full-time side. So a company can post a job for a bud tender, uh, bud tenders that make a profile, they upload their badge for the state they're in can go uh, look at the job, apply to the job and then connect um, with the client. And so we launched that and it's going great, but the feedback that we're getting from the candidate community is that it's, it's great that they're able to connect with companies, but they want a place where they can connect with other candidates. And so they want a place where they can connect and learn from other bud tenders. And so in October, we're, we're, we're opening it up. So we're opening search up. So if you're a bud tender, you can search other bud tenders in your area and you can add them and, and you can have dialogue with them. Like most bud tenders aren't hanging out on, let's say, LinkedIn, which is a you know, large um, professional network. And so I think it's going to be real. And we're opening up forums uh, for different types of industry employees to have conversations. And so I'm super excited to see like the types of conversations that start and the connections that happen as we move from uh, not just a job platform, but a community platform as well. Great. And, you know, talk a little bit about those who have criminal records and what they you know, should uh, think about when they come to you as an organization or when they reach out and try to get a job and employment in the industry? Sure. Actually, we just had, we're having a, um, I'll send you information. We're having a, a workshop with our recruiters and Last Prisoner Project about how any internal recruiter at any company can help a candidate who's in the re-entry process. And so I think a lot of times, a lot of the things that our recruiters do with candidates who aren't in the re-entry process are very different um, than how you help a candidate in the re-entry process. And so one thing that we're finding is it isn't, it isn't really so much about the resume. A lot of it is around confidence building. I, w- I was working with a woman who just got out of jail. She'd been in jail for 10 years. And she said, look, before I was in jail, I was in commercial real estate. I was at the top of my game. I was moving and shaking. 
Um, she actually got in trouble because her boyfriend was selling cannabis and she went to jail for 10 years. And she said, I got out. And before I go into the interviews, I just break down. I'm so embarrassed that I was in jail for 10 years. I can't get my confidence up to do the interviews. And so it's uh, working with candidates on interview prep, right? In that, in, in her specific case, it's how do we um, make sure that you can talk about what you, you can talk about the experience you had before prison, some of the experiences that, and what you've learned while you were in prison and where you are now and where you want to go. So really telling that candidate's story and helping candidates have the confidence that um, you deserve this job just as much as anybody else. And we want to help you get it. Um, and so I think like the candidate confident piece has been one thing that's we've learned uh, in launching this program that's been um super important and the feedback that we've gotten from candidates in the re-entry process is that's one of the most important uh, things to them. Without giving out names, maybe could you give us some, a couple examples of some candidates that, you know, maybe like you just said, there's a lady who's been in the business or was in prison for 10 years. You got any other stories like that to maybe right now send a message to people that, ah, even though you were, may have been incarcerated for 12 years, don't give up because. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many uh, great stories like this. I mean, we, we, I, I don't know if it's appropriate to name names. I won't name names, but uh, we spoke to a guy uh, the other day who got out of prison. I think he was in prison for eight years. He actually went and started a business in Massachusetts. And now in his business, he wants to hire all people who are in the reentry process. And so, I mean, he got out and he started his own, his own business. And he's, and I mean, I thought that was just an, an amazing story in, in speaking to him. And I mean, I think that like, to, to your point, um, this industry very much unfairly negatively impacted people of color. And that's not right. And every single person that's in this business right now has a responsibility to not only hire uh, people of color and equity candidates, but to make sure that to make them owners. That's another thing that we speak to a lot about um, candidates in this reentry process, right? Helping them um, work through like stock option um, which is which is very common in a lot of our companies to offer stock options, but a lot of candidates don't know anything about that. And so, how can we make sure that we're helping them make sure that they're that they're getting a good deal when they're signing up with the company? So, really, just like all these little things that in going through the job process, people don't don't know about. Well, you know, I've noticed and and, and I've, I have slight experience with it and have seen it firsthand. Where you know there are a lot of companies that just will, in a token way reach out to grab a, let's say an African-American who owns a plot of land and say, well, look, I'll bring you on so that, and put you in a position where it looks like you're a 50% or 51% owner of my company, where they really are no more than a 2% owner of my company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll put your name on the application so that you can help me get the license. And when the license comes, it's in the other person's name, not the African-American yeah. candidate's name. And this has happened all over America. Mm-hmm. Are you educating people and letting them know that before you jump into an agreement with somebody, make sure that you're dealing with some people who are not just using you in a token way? Yeah, I mean, the applications uh, process stories have been just so disturbing. The exact scenario of what you just described, we saw firsthand, like we've seen it happen where people say, hey, like you're going to be a 50% owner, you're on the license application. They win the license, the company wins the license, and then they basically kick them off of it. So, and I mean, I, I think on that end, it's showing in a lot of these cities that rolled out social equity programs where this was a requirement. I think the intention was good, but I don't think the execution was good. Like the fact that there's no follow-up to go and follow up and see, okay, now that the company's operational, 
who are the owners. I mean, like that's a problem on from the cities that are rolling out these programs level. And so, yeah, we definitely, any of the clients that are coming to us saying, Hey, we'd like you to help us find um, somebody to be part of our uh, application. I mean, there, there, we, we, that we really need to better understand like what are their intents there? Is it just to win the licensed application or is it to have a true business partner and they're doing this out of the right reasons? And to your point, I think a lot of people have, have um, it was not a well-run program. We've got a lot of states that are right now still mired in lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit, slowing down the distribution of cannabis um, in those states because of these kinds of, of issues. Yeah. I mean, it, exactly. I think that the, like I said, I do believe that the intentions from the city and government level were good, but I don't think it was in many states, a well-executed program. And there was some really unfortunate stories that came out of it. Well, right now we're sitting, well, I think we're sitting with 39 states and the district of Columbia, or is it 38 states plus the district of Columbia? It's 39 in the district of Columbia, I believe. I mean, yeah, we've got five new ones. We've got, we've got a couple new ones coming up. They're going to be on the ballot this, this November, correct? Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think, just, just crystal ball here for a second, you know, there's no other issue in America that you have almost 80% of the states that have agreed on a law, yet the federal government still maintains an illegal status for. I mean, you know, uh, how much longer do you think it's going to be before the Fed's going to have to get off the stick and do something? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do wish that I had um, a crystal ball, but I mean, to your point, um, it, it's, I don't think it's a question of if, I think it's a question of when. I think that, you take a look at, uh, you, I think you, you just said Biden, but you take a look at both candidates right now, neither one of them have been historically friendly to this industry. I, I watched, um, I watched a clip yesterday that was uh, the Biden administration saying that they would they would definitely decriminalize. Right. Obviously, there's a difference between decriminalizing and federally legalizing. I think that, like like I said, I think it's a question of um, when, not if. And I, I think it'll be interesting to see that if we if we continue going state by state or if there's some type of movement at the federal level. I'm not sure. If we go state by state, then this could be another 10 years because there will be holdouts in this for at least 10 more years, even though there'll be a burgeoning and a, and a you know, very successful cannabis program in their state. I think there are several states, at least two to three, that I can think of right off the top of my head that I think will never uh, uh, legalize just because, just because. Um, and, you know, when you look at, at this idea of decriminalization, that to me seems like it's a ridiculously stupid non-starter, especially when, you know, all of the reasons for just decriminalization, meaning, you know, we, we still have, you know, President or Vice President Biden still believes that cannabis is some sort of a gateway drug, doesn't even understand that it's an exit drug. Uh, and science has now proven that. And he's got, you know, a attorney general who did as much in making sure people were arrested for cannabis in her state than she did in trying to correct some of the draconian laws in her state. So, you know, what do you think the role is of the industry to see if they can help? Again, I go back to education, 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 education. Every single day that Vice President Biden was in the Senate every year, he voted for a program that allowed for the federal government to dispense cannabis 
to back then 20 people. And then it ended up being now down to three because 17 of them had died. But every year they put in a budget, a program at the University of Mississippi that allowed for the University of Mississippi to ship cannabis out across the country. He doesn't even know that he did that. I will guarantee you half the Congress doesn't know that they voted for it. And they voted for it again this year. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, education is the most important thing and the entire industry has an obligation, right? Whether that's, you know, that that means getting in front of your local politicians, speaking with them as, as business leaders going. Uh, there's a ton of industry organizations that actually go to D.C. Obviously, this year we couldn't do it, but it was called Lobby Days where you're, I think they had 300 plus industry business owners that uh, went, went to Washington and went and met with politician staffers. And I think that every business owner has, an obligation to continue educating and to your point um like sticking to the facts right looking at looking at the science to the point that you just made around how a lot of people believe that it's a gateway drug not an exit drug and a lot of science has proven otherwise looking at that looking at the jobs that the industry's created looking at the tax revenue that the uh, industry has generated right just really uh looking at the facts i think there's a lot of people with a lot of opinions that have uh you know come from uh, i you know over the last 50 years, right? And so it's just coming down to changing people's perception and looking at the facts and every business owner and employee in the space uh, has an obligation to educate their politicians and the general public. You know, well, and then and I, I mean, I'm just, we're just free flowing right now and I'm, I'm falling on, on the idea of the industry when you say the industry has an obligation, but I don't even know if this industry has really, you know, evolved past the first phase. The first phase is everybody wants to make money. Yeah, let me go get me money. Yay. Let me get my little piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. Where we understand that no industry has ever been successful in this country until they've come together and work together to move forward. Look at things like the hyperbaric industry or look at other industries that, you know, uh, or the nutraceutical industry. You look at all these industries, at one point in time, they said, wait a second, guys, if we keep doing this by ourselves, we're never going to get ahead. If we come together and truly come together, we might be a lobbying force that is one that needs to be reckoned with. I think uh, in the last couple of years, we've taken steps backwards rather than steps forward because everybody's trying to fight for a little teeny piece of the pie. What do you think? I, I would agree with you that people, uh, the industry needs to come together. And I think that people are starting to to realize that. I've seen a lot of, we've seen a lot of collaboration amongst our clients that used to be competitors going neck to neck that I think have realized that for the greater good of the industry, um, they need to come together. And so I do think that the industry is realizing that and, and starting to to come together. And I, I generally agree with everything you just said. Now, you know, do you think now we're, here we've been, we've gotten used to, you know, I think the entire world has changed because of COVID. And some of this will never change back. I don't believe. I think that this whole idea of having, you know, it was great when we started with having dispensaries where people and the dispensaries are still seeing a clientele come in the front door, albeit that that's been reduced. I think that this industry may end up seeing, you know, it may go the way of, uh, you know, a Bezos world where, you know, there's more individual delivery done than there is, you know, actually walking into the dispensary, which I'm not sure is really going to be good for the industry because then I get to hide. You know, if I'm having it delivered to my front door, nobody has to know that I actually do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we had to make them walk out the door and stand in the street for a minute to get in the store, 
you know, even though people were turned facing the building so you couldn't see their face, at least they were outside. Yeah. Now we're going to go back to this hidden kind of society, which worries me a little bit. What do you think? I, I think the experience is super important part of the industry, right? And, but I agree with you that I think it will uh, be a hybrid. I think there's certainly people that like to go in, that have a relationship with the people that work at their dispensary, that like to learn and hear about the, you know, the latest and greatest products. I think that a lot, especially a lot of first time people, like I know for me, when people come and visit me in Colorado, like the experience of going to a dispensary, they're so shocked by it. They're like, wow, this isn't sketchy. This was so normal. Like, I, I really do believe that, to your point, the experience of going and seeing uh, like how legitimate it is. I mean, you can't, there, it's, you're, there's so, you know what it's like going to a dispensary. There's, you know, you can't, you go in, you you get ID'd, you get checked in. There's professional bud tenders who are explaining to you all the various um, types of products. There's so much to choose from. I mean, I think that experience is really an important part of breaking the stigma. And so I hope that um, it, it, it continues on. I do too. And if you, you know, again, I'll put that crystal ball back on you again, but you know, if you had to think, let's look at the next five years. What do you think? I think that, so again, and I, I, everyone has a different opinion that, that you asked this to, but my personal opinion is that um, medical marijuana will be legalized federally and that this then, so each state will launch a medical program. And I think that once they see the success in the medical program, uh, recreational will shortly follow thereafter. And so I think Medical will be legalized federally, and it will be the state's choice on uh, recreational and in the near term. So my personal prediction. Yeah, I believe that uh, when you say recreational or adult use, I believe that it's all the same. I think that recreational, adult use, and medical is the same. Most people who turn to cannabis are turning to cannabis because they have some form of underlying medical issue anyway, even though they may not even admit it, whether that be anxiety, whether it be, you know, not ability to sleep or relax, one of those things. I think that there's an underlying medical reason behind everyone's gravitation to uh, uh, cannabis. And though we may start off with a, you know, medical bill passed in every single state, I think that, um, you know, the expansion of that will probably show that, you know, even if you go to recreational, those people standing in the recreational line are people that think that they're getting a cheaper price than the medical price. You know what I mean? No, I, I totally agree. Um, I, I don't think there's a huge difference. I just think that right now that's how it's set up. And so I, I think it will continue on that, that path since that's what people have been doing and what's the states have been doing. Absolutely. And again, last thoughts, one more time. What's next for Banks? We are really excited. We're having our virtual career fair coming up. So anybody that's interested. That's in October, right? Yes. It's in October. It's October 21st and 22nd. It's two days uh content. There's a lot of speakers coming. There's networking rooms. And then of course there's booths where candidates can actually go and find jobs. And so we're really, really excited uh, for that. That's super. That's super. And if somebody wants to reach out to you, where do they go? Give them the- they can go to banks.com. Banks.com. Okay. Well, I got to say thank you so much, Ms. Carson Huniston, for being a part of today's Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And you've been listening to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And Carson is the founder and CEO of Banks which is the world's largest recruiting platform focused specifically on the cannabis industry. If you want to get more information, you can, of course, go to our website, uh, Let's Rebound Montel, or you can, without a doubt, go up on banks.com. I'm going to say thank you. You have a home here, Carson, whenever you want one. If you have anything you want to put out, make sure you come back to us, and we'll get you some time on air to let you do it. Thanks so much, Montel. This was a really fun interview. Thank you. Absolutely. And to make sure you tune in to the next 
Let's be blunt with Montel. Are you dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to the Hot Happy Mess podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.